0: Turn with me in your Bibles to First Corinthians chapter 15. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be First Corinthians chapter 15, all of it, verses 1 through 58. Now I know that scares some of you. Um, you know, the pace at which I normally move uh, when I am uh, preaching through uh, a text, I promise we're going to... least try uh, to move more quickly uh, this morning and we won't uh, I won't keep you here until tomorrow Um, and so we will we will try to to work through this but I do want to read the entire chapter it's a long chapter and it's going to take some effort to uh, follow along that's why I I truly recommend that you have your Bibles open so that you can have the words in front of you but this is uh, the most extended discussion of the resurrection uh, in the New Testament as Paul reflects upon the truths of Easter Sunday, and applies them to the lies of the saints who were in Corinth. And so I want us to hear uh, what Paul has to say, and I want us to follow the flow of his entire argument. We obviously won't be able to go into depth in everything, uh, but I want us to follow the uh, follow out the, the full logic of his argument until we reach his conclusion uh, in verse 58. So let us begin by reading it together the chapter. Listen to this. This is the very word... For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits; then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, but my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame." But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come, you foolish person? What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of weed or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. But there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory for the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. And star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus, it is written the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon the preaching here this morning. Father God, this is Your Word and it is living and active. A living Word by which we have been born again to a living hope and through which now we are being built up to grow into that salvation. Father, we pray that Your Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, would now be at work here bringing forth light in our hearts as we hear your gospel, equipping us to do those good works which you have prepared in advance that we might walk in them. Father, do this by your word, through your spirit, to the praise of your glory and the power of your Son. We pray it in his name. Amen. Yesterday, Sarah and I and the kids were at her sister's house. We were celebrating Easter with her family. And as we sat around the table after dinner, we began to talk. And as conversations tend to do, it meandered here and it meandered there. And at some point, someone brought up something they had seen on YouTube. Ever had that experience? It's like, well, did you see this? I saw it. It's, it's amazing. We, we have those kind of discussions a lot. The the thing in particular that they were talking about yesterday was this swimming pool with a glass bottom that's on top of a building in Houston. And you can swim out and, and you're over the street as you look down. And I have to admit, that's, that's pretty cool. I would like to be in that pool at some point in my life before I die. That would be a very cool experience to be swimming 500 feet up in the air, And I, I've, had, I've seen lots of things like that on YouTube. I've seen lots of, of amazing things. I have a friend who is a biology teacher in St. Louis, and he is constantly posting videos to YouTube about uh, amazing creatures that inhabit this planet that we live on. And, and he posts these things. He says, have you seen anything like this? And you, you watch the video and you just stand back amazed. I have another friend who, who doesn't post videos about creatures, but he, he posts videos about locations, about places that he's been, about things that he has seen. Whether they be out west, or whether they be up in Alaska, or whether they be even on another continent. He, he goes to these places, and he posts these videos, and he says, have you ever seen anything like this? It's one of the things that YouTube is good for. There's maybe a lot of things it's not so good for, but, but I love to see... I love to see these amazing videos. And and sometimes it's not creatures. Sometimes it's not not locations. Sometimes it's people. People can do amazing things. And there are uh, things that people do that you see on YouTube and you just sort of sit back and all. You say, I cannot believe anybody can do that with their body. You're, you're amazed. And, and when I'm watching videos like this, if someone brings one up and we pull out our phones and we're all watching it, inevitably everybody gathers around to see. It happened yesterday. When I pulled up the video about the, the swimming pool, all of the kids came streaming and they were all watching my phone for the next 90 seconds. It's what happens. We are amazed and, and we flock to see amazing things. But every once in a while you see a video on YouTube And even if it's amazing, you're still like, ah, I'm not quite sure that ever really happened. (laughs) I'm not quite sure that's that's true. There was a a video that I saw not too long ago of a man who got hit by lightning twice in about ten seconds. And and we watched that and we're like, well, that's a pretty cool video, but that didn't happen. (laughs) There's just just no way. And, of course, you go on the Internet and you can research it and you find out you're right. That's a fake. Someone created that. It's It's a story that's made I wonder if there are any here this morning who think that way about the resurrection. We have gathered here this morning to to hear something incredible. To hear something amazing. To hear something beyond belief. The, the, The resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That this man, flesh and blood, died. That he was buried and on the third day he rose again from the dead. That is truly beyond belief much more than the videos you see on YouTube, that is incredible. That is mind-blowing. And I'm sure that there are at least some here this morning who find it not just hard, but impossible to believe. You're here because it's what you do. Your your family brought you, or your friends brought you, or you just kind of grew up going to church on Easter. But the truth be told, all this sounds to you much more like a fairy tale. Sounds to you much more like make-believe than it does... Like history. You can no more believe in a resurrected Christ than you could believe in the Easter bunny. It's just not something that you're going to swallow. And if that's where you are this morning, I, I want you to know that, that there's a part of me that, that resonates with your incredulity. I, I recognize why you find this hard to believe. It. it is incredible. But I would suggest to you it's no more incredible than the creation that you take for granted every day. Look around. You, you live on a planet filled with incredible, awe-inspiring things. You, you live surrounded by things that God has made, the God who, who calls into existence the things that previously did not exist, and you just take it for granted. I don't have time to, to go into a full apologetic argument this morning, but to, to suggest to you that, that the creation declares the glory of God. The creation tells you that God is there. And if there is a God who can call into being that which previously did not exist, if there's a God who can create ex nihilo, then there is a God who can raise the dead. There's a God who can recreate. There's a God who can make all things new. And if you find this hard to believe, you're right. It is hard to believe. It is incredible. But I ask you to to humble yourself before the Word of God and before the the living King and ask Him to open your eyes to the truth. Because this is truth. This is history. These these are events that took place in space and time. This is is not make-believe. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a morality play meant to to make a point. This is history. History. And the history of the events is the very foundation of our hope. As Paul says in this very chapter, if it is not true, if Christ is not raised, then our gospel is a fake and our faith is futile. The events of the resurrection, the the events of Easter Sunday, they are the very foundation of the gospel that we have believed, the gospel that we have received. But here's the thing. Here's the question I want us to to wrestle with. Do we live any different, any differently than the person who finds it hard to believe? Any differently than the person who who believes it's make believe? Any differently than the person who who believes it's a, a fairy tale? Because we should. It's the point that Paul's making in this chapter. The point that Paul is driving home here is that, listen, if we believe these things, it ought to change everything. It ought to make everything different. We're going to see Paul unfold three points in this chapter. First, he's going to simply remind us of the foundations of the gospel that we have believed. The foundational events, the events of that first Easter weekend. He is then going to point us to the implications of those events. He's going to say, because these things are true, this is what follows. This is also true. And namely, the implication that he's going to point us to is he's going to say, because Christ rose, we made like Him shall also rise. That is the hope of the gospel. And finally, he's going to say, because we have this hope, therefore we ought to live like Christ. This, Therefore, we ought to be stable, we ought to be steadfast, we ought to be abounding in the works of the Lord, because that is the life of the gospel. So first, the foundation of the gospel, then the hope of the gospel, and then finally, the life of the gospel. Let's move through it quickly. We begin... With the foundation of the gospel, this is what Paul begins with in in the first part of this chapter. Notice what he says. He says, I would remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, the gospel that you received, the gospel in which you now stand, and the gospel by which you are being saved. That just sounds like he's just sort of setting the table. But those are important phrases. This is the gospel that Paul preached. It's the same gospel that they believe. It's the gospel in which they now stand. And it's the gospel by which they are being saved. And what's important for us to see there is that there is only one gospel. The faith once for all delivered to the saints is the same gospel that Paul preached. It's the same gospel that the Corinthians believed. When you believe the gospel, when you receive these things... You don't believe a gospel that you made up. You don't believe how you want to believe about God. You actually believe the testimony of those who were eyewitnesses, those who were commissioned by Christ Himself to go and to tell His story even to the ends of the earth. It is the true gospel that we believe, the gospel of the eyewitnesses, the gospel of those who were there with Jesus from the beginning. This is the gospel that we believe in. It's by this gospel, if we stand in it, that we will be saved. There is no hope apart from this gospel. So what is this gospel? What is this gospel that we believe? What is this gospel that that is our hope of salvation? Paul tells us, beginning in verse 3, notice what he says. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received. In other words, this is the priority. These are the principles. This is the foundation. These are the things of first importance. This is the foundation upon which everything else is built. And what is that? Foundation. It's really two-pronged. First, Christ died and he was buried as the proof of his death. And second, he rose again from the dead and he appeared to many as proof of his resurrection. So first, Christ died. And He died for our sins in accord with the Scriptures. It's not just that Christ died to to demonstrate God's love for us, but rather He died as a demonstration of God's love for us as the sacrifice for our sins. That's what made the sacrifice loving. Simply laying down your life, if it was unnecessary, is is not an act of love. It's It's an act of insanity. What makes Christ's sacrifice loving is that This is what was necessary to rescue us from the condemnation, from the wrath under which we stood. Christ came and stood in our place. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ died as the the Lamb who stood in our place. Remember the story of Abraham on on the mountain. as He's about to sacrifice his son and God says, Stop. Do not lay a hand on the boy. And he looks up and he sees caught In the thicket, a ram who will die in Isaac's place. And in that moment, we we catch a glimpse, we catch a preview of what the Father will do. Imagine Abraham's anguish as he was called upon to sacrifice his own son, and yet confident in God, he was willing to do it. But God spared Abraham by providing a substitute. But in providing a substitute, he did not spare himself. He did not spare His Son, but He put Him forward as the sacrifice for our sins. That we who were justly condemned might instead be justified. That we who deserved to die might instead know life. Christ died for us. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And He was buried under the power of death for. This was was no fainting spell. This was was no mere close death experience. He died and He was buried. And then, as the Scriptures say, on the third day He rose again from the dead. He came out alive. Not just resuscitated, but resurrected, transformed, made new. Our resurrected Lord. And again, as proof of that resurrection, He appeared to many. He appeared to Cephas, who was Peter. He appeared to the twelve. He appeared to five hundred at one time. And notice what Paul says, most of whom are still alive. Go ask them. That's the implication. He says, listen, there are numerous eyewitnesses. Go and ask them. He appeared to James. He appeared to all the apostles. He appeared, lastly, to me. This is the gospel that Paul preached. This is the gospel that the Corinthians believe. And Paul says, if this gospel is true, and it is, then there are clear implications. There are clear implications. There is a hope that is ours through this gospel. And the hope is this, that if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, we, made like Him, shall also rise. His resurrection is the ground and the guarantee of our hope of resurrection. This is the hope of the gospel. Notice how Paul gets there. He begins by asking a question in verse 12. He said, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection? He says, I don't get this. How can you say there's not a resurrection? The, The very gospel is built upon the foundation of the fact that Jesus Christ was raised. But if there is no resurrection, then not even Christ is raised. And if Christ is not raised, there is no gospel. Our preaching is vain. Your faith is vain. We are still in our sins. But Paul can't linger there very long without going on. But, but Christ indeed is raised from the dead. You doubt it, but you know it to be true. It was. It's the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Christ is raised, and notice what he says. He says he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ's resurrection was not a one-off event. It was not unique. it was not so sort of just this, this extraordinary thing that, that happened over here that has no bearing on anything else, but rather he was raised as the first fruits. Think of what that imagery means. The first fruits are the, the, the first fruits of the harvest or the, the, they are the first things that are harvested they, and they are a testimony, they are a promise, they are a token that the harvest will come. And if the first fruits are tomatoes, then you can be pretty sure that the rest of the fruit are going to be tomatoes also. The, the first fruits are a sign. They show us what the harvest will look like, what the harvest will be. He says, listen, Christ's resurrection was the beginning of a harvest. The harvest of all those who are in him. Notice what he says. He says, as by man came death, by man comes a resurrection. And the the clear implication is that as far spread as death was in Adam, and it was ubiquitous, it, it spread to all. In Adam all died. So also now all those who are in Christ shall be raised. If all who are in Adam died, all who now are in Christ shall live. In Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive. That is the hope of the Gospel. But notice what he says next. He says, but this will all happen in its proper order. First Christ, He has already been raised. He is the the first fruits. But only at His coming will everyone who is in Him also be raised. And at this point, our our cynical side wants to ask, well, why the delay, God? If you're going to do this great thing, why not just get on with it? Why not do it? Why, Why draw out this present evil age? What are you doing? Why the delay? This is the question that Paul turns to. and His answer basically boils down to this. That the delay is for the sake of salvation. Christ is subduing his enemies. He is redeeming for himself. A people, he is at work even now. And think about what that imagery means. What does it mean for Christ to be at work subduing his enemies? It means that he is building his church even as he promised. Remember what he said to Peter. He said, Peter, on this rock, on the rock of your testimony, the rock that that you know that I am the Messiah, on that foundation I will build my church. And then he said, and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. We think of that sometimes as a as a defensive image. As if, you know, the church is all hunkered down and they've got their gates up and, and hell can bombard them but they can't break through. But that's not what the image actually suggests. It's actually the other way around. It is the church that is on the offensive. It is the gates of hell that will be broken down. It is the gates of hell that cannot stand. And this is what Christ is doing now. Our resurrected Lord is on the offensive now. He is spreading His church. We see the beginning of this in the book of Acts. Luke tells us in, in uh, the very beginning of his second volume, he says, this is the continuing story of the things that Christ did. The first volume told you the things that Christ began to do. This is We're now going to tell you the things that Christ continued to do. This is the story of Christ building His church. And even the gates of hell will not stand against it. And until Christ has finished building His church, this age will continue. The last enemy to be defeated, he says, is death. But when Christ has finished the work of subduing His enemies to Himself and redeeming for Himself a people, then, in the fullness of time, death will Be defeated. That's at this point, of course, that Paul says one of the strangest things in all of the New Testament. And you probably noticed it when I was reading through the chapter. I thought about skipping those verses, but that might look suspicious. And so, um, you know, we we had to read them. But doesn't mean we understand him. Notice what Paul says. He says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized for the dead? I don't know, Paul. What do people mean by being baptized for the dead? I have no idea what you are talking about. It is, it is strange. We, we're not sure. And you can go find all kinds of commentaries, and, and you can settle on your opinion. But even when you settle on your opinion, you still won't know. Because we don't know. We're, we're guessing. We're not quite sure what Paul is talking about here. But but notice, even without knowing what Paul is talking about, even without fully understanding what he is He is saying here, Paul is saying, listen, he's appealing to what the Corinthians know. He says, listen, you know this to be true. You know the hope of this resurrection. It's something that you, you know instinctively, even if you have a hard time believing. And he said, and look at my ministry. My ministry is based upon this reality. Why would anybody do what I'm doing if this wasn't true? Why would anybody... Why would anybody continue to, to preach this gospel at such costs? You notice he says, I'm in danger every hour. I had to fight with beasts at, at Ephesus. Elsewhere in his other letters, he, he talks about just the things that he had to endure, the, the hardships, the, the going without. Why would anyone do this except that he knows the hope of the resurrection? He knows that what's done for the Lord is not in Vain. He says, listen, if this resurrection is not true, let us let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the best that we can do. That's the best we can do. No one would, no one would do what we're doing. No one would, would endure these hardships. No one would devote themselves for this ministry. They did not know that the hope of the resurrection was true. But even as we begin to see that, yes, okay, there is this hope, there's this hope of this resurrection, but what does that actually mean? What is resurrection? What are you you talking about? This is the question that Paul turns to in verse 35. Notice the question that he raises. He says, Some will ask, How are the dead raised? And and that sounds to us like a technique question. It sounds to us like a a method question. Like, well, how is God going to pull this off? But that's not actually the question that Paul is asking. He's actually asking about the nature of the resurrection. Notice what he says next. He says, With what kind of body do they come. You see, what you have to understand here is that everlasting life isn't great news. If this life goes on forever, that's not a great reward. This life is hard. This life is full of groaning. This life forever sounds more like punishment. Do you really want this to be Forever, Paul, what are you talking about? How can these frail bodies inherit the imperishable? That's exactly what Paul says. He says, are you foolish? Of course it's not these bodies. Of course there's going to be a change. He says, do you not know that what is sown is not the same as what is harvested? He says, do you not know that there are different kinds of, of bodies? Do you not know that there are different degrees of, of glory? We see this even in nature. And of course, it will be the same in the resurrection. The reward is not this life forever. The reward is the life of the age to come. What is now perishable will be raised imperishable. Now we are subject to decay. No more in the age to come. We will be imperishable. Now we are covered in dishonor. We are covered in shame. We are covered in in guilt, but we will be raised in glory. Our guilt will be removed as far as the east is from the west. Our shame will be utterly removed. It will be utterly covered. We will be raised in glory. Now we are full of weakness, Then we will be raised in power. Now we have natural bodies. Then we will have a spiritual body. And don't mishear what he's saying there. He's not talking about an immaterial body, but a natural body. That's the the body of dust. That's the body we have now. But we in that age will have a body animated by the Holy Spirit of God. a, a, A body fit for heaven. A body fit to do the work of the Spirit. This is the hope of our resurrection. Not just that this life would go on forever, but that we would inherit the life of the age to come. Life as it was supposed to be. Life untouched by sin, Peter says, undefiled, unfading, and indestructible. That is our inheritance in Christ. Because you see what he says in verse 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. If we remained in these mortal, perishable bodies, we we could not inherit the kingdom of God. We, we We could not have our place there. But we will not remain in these bodies. These bodies will waste away. These bodies will return to dust. But not then will we be unclothed, Peter says in 2 Corinthians. But then we will be further clothed. Then we will receive bodies fit for heaven. Then we will be raised fit to live forever in the kingdom of God, living to the glory of our King. The dead will be raised imperishable. And those who are still alive when He returns, they will not miss out. They will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Those who are in Christ will receive power and glory in imperishable bodies. Immortality will be theirs. And in that day, Paul says, the, the, the prophecy will be fulfilled. Death will be defeated. Its victory swallowed up. Its sting turned to nothing. For what does he say? He says the, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Death death is, is, is that final condemnation because of sin. And sin condemns because of the law. But the law has been fulfilled in Christ. Its power has been broken. It has no right to condemn us anymore because we have been justified. And therefore, physical death is no longer a threat. It's no longer something to fear. In fact, we can say in Christ it is even gain. Because when we leave this body, when we leave this age, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And knowing one day That we will receive new bodies where we can live forever to the glory of our King. That is our gospel hope. Because Jesus Christ rose, we know, made like Him, we too shall rise. That's gospel. That's good news. But what difference does it make here and now? Yes, we look forward to it. Well, notice what Paul says. Here's the conclusion he reaches. Therefore... My beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Knowing that your lives now are not in vain because you have been redeemed by a resurrected Lord. Think about that. Think about the book of Ecclesiastes. Do you remember, remember what the, the the preacher discovered in his his pursuits? The conclusion that he reached is vanity, vanity. Everything is vanity. And the word that is, is translated vanity is a word that might more literally be translated vapor. It's just a mist. It just burns up. It, it goes away. It's of, it's of no substance. What difference does it make? Everything's a chasing after the wind, he says. What difference does this life make? make. Sometimes teenagers hear that eat, drink, and be merry as if that's like a victory cry. You think that? You know, they, they hear, oh man, if only I could eat, drink, and be merry. But that's not what it is. It is a it's the cry of a desperate man. It's a cry that says there's nothing better than this. This is, this is all that there is. It's a cry of desperation because God has created us with a longing to matter. He has created us with a longing to know that what we do is of significance. That what we, that we do makes a difference. The worst job I ever had in my life was one of the easiest jobs I ever had in my life, but it was pointless. I sat at a desk and did nothing, and they paid me well, but I quit because it was driving me crazy. Sometimes people think that way about life. What difference does it make? It's just pushing rocks up a hill to, to watch them roll down so we can do it again tomorrow. It's, it's vanity. And Paul says, no, it's not. Your Christ is risen. And because He has risen, you too will rise. And therefore, maybe you don't see the big picture. Maybe you don't know the significance of everything you're going to do. But what you do now for Him matters. It is not vain. Because you have an eternity to devote to the glory of your King. We don't always know why it matters we don't know always know what role it plays in the big picture but we have a god who is weaving together all of the str- the strands of history into his beautiful tapestry and if we are his servants then we can know what we do for him is of eternal significance we can live now giving ourselves away in his service because we know that's what's done for him is not in Vain. We don't have to eat, drink, and be merry. We're free from that desperation. We get to work for the Lord and even suffer for Him if necessary, knowing that what we do in His service is of eternal value because we have eternal life in a resurrected Lord. And because we have such life and because it gives meaning to our lives here and now, That's why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Pray with me. Father God, we do rejoice in this gospel. Father, you know how our hearts long for meaning. You know how we long to to have something of significance to do. And we thank you, Father, that you have not only given us a future, but you have given us a present. Father, that you have rescued us from futility and that you have given us meaning and significance. Father God, I pray that You would give us us the grace that we need daily to believe this Gospel, to stand in this Gospel, and to live out of this Gospel to the praise of Your glorious name. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.